Greetings, church. My name is Jason. I'm one of the elders at Church in the Square. Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 will be in uh, verses 29 and 30. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. If you get to First and Second Corinthians, go back to the left. Romans 3, verse 29 through 30. We're going to continue looking at this particular chapter as Paul has been explaining justification by faith alone. As we continue in this series that we've just simply dubbed justification by love, because that's what God has done. He has justified us. He has saved us. He has proclaimed and made us righteous. And what we've looked at in this particular portion is that because of the work of Christ, we now can live uh, by humility and with humility, we can live by faith. And today we want to look at what it means to live in unity, unity with, with God and unity with one another. And the thing that we'll discover today is that unity, paradoxically, is not about us, but it's about God. And unity is going to leap from the page, though it may not be uh, explicit, but it's going to leap from the page because isn't it true that unity is something incredibly in vogue for us today? At the uh, After the uh, experience of a contentious election cycle, talks of unity skyrocket. And understandably, we can be kind of jaded about those kinds of overtures. However, there's something, I think, about being human, about being connected, about, about friendships within community, where we desire to, to not just be connected to others, but we desire to be at peace. We desire to be on mission. We de desire to be connected in, at the level of the soul and the heart we desire unity. We want to be together in this. We want to, be, we want to lock our arms. We want to be fully present with one another. We want to be part of a people, not just in the same room as others. But, but I think why this can be hard for us is because there is a wide gap between what the world considers as unity and what the Bible teaches is unity. And so what we'll look at today is what it means to live in unity. And if I can just race ahead, I don't want to bury the lead today. Here is the defining difference between the world and the church, or between uh, the present cultural moment and the people of God as revealed in the scriptures. See, to the world, unity is a future goal, something that we aspire to. But to the church, unity is a present reality. In other words, modern society, uh, and we see the implications of this, I think, in our city, is that we chase unity as the object of something that we achieve one day, or that we hope to achieve one day through our efforts, that unity is an aspiration. But as the people of God, we are called to defend and maintain unity as part of our communal identity. In other words, unity is a pre-existing condition for those who are in Christ. Where do I get this distinction? Well, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And here it is, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Did you hear that? Eager to maintain it. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. See, in, in Christ, we don't work to achieve unity and reach for it and work towards it. We, we rather work to maintain it. The Spirit of God himself is the sign and seal of our unity that Christ Jesus has purchased for us. 
So we can say that unity is not about us. Unity is about God. Or we might say unity is the result, not of our works, but of the work of God. So that means that the question then for us today, for us to consider and wrestle with, is not how do we achieve unity in today's world or in our time, but rather the question must be for us as followers of Jesus, your church in the square in Chicago, 2021, how did Jesus already achieve unity through the cross? And what does it mean for us to live in light of that reality? Hopefully the distinction makes sense. We are not a people who try to work towards unity as a goal. We are a people who work to maintain unity that is a present reality for those who are in Christ. Paul is going to teach us about this unity today through the character and nature of God. So look at Romans chapter 3, verse 29 and 30 with me. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, he says, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So, so Paul tells us that God is the God of both Jews and Gentiles. He is God of all peoples because, did you hear what he said? God is one. So unity isn't about us. It's about God. Let's ask for God's help as we come to his word. Heavenly Father, as always, left to ourselves, we will uh, lack understanding. We will lack ability and wisdom to know truly who you are and what you're calling us to do in the world. And so we ask, Father, that you would open our eyes, open our hearts, uh, help us to be contrite before you, help us to be eager, Father, for sin to be revealed today. Help us to not grow bashful when your spirit makes plain and clear how this word uh, applies to our, our lives, how your law reveals the truth of our brokenness today, and help us to trust you in that brokenness. Help us to trust you in our sin and, and in, our, in our weakness, because we know that in our weakness, we find true strength in Christ. And so we trust you in that, Father. And we, and we trust you not just individually, but as a people. We pray that you'd shape us through this word today. Give us a vision, give us clarity, give us joy. In this we, we pray, in Jesus' name. Everybody agreed and said, Amen. So talk of unity, as I hope that we have already settled, uh, is not a fad in which Christians now participate with some sort of a partisan particularity. See, for us, unity is a gift we daily labor to protect and keep and nurture and grow. We don't look forward to a day when we will become one. We look backward to a day when we were made one. And this completely changes our orientation around each other around what it means to be us as the people of God. And I think that's what Paul has in mind when he writes this in Romans chapter 3, verse 29 and 30. We don't look to the future in hopes that sort of progress and inclusion and intersectionality and diverse people groups will all get along one day once we sort of weed out racism and sexism and all manners of prejudice. These are noble pursuits. These are good pursuits. These in, in the right context are even Christian pursuits. But the fruit of all of those things does not give us unity. Rather, we look backward to the day when Jesus was nailed to the cross, making for himself an eternal, an eternal citizenry from every tribe and tongue and nation and people. That's the gospel. That's where our unity comes from. Our hope is not that we'll figure it out one day. Our hope is that Jesus has already done it. Our hope is that Jesus has already achieved it. In fact, if, if I think we're really honest, much of the Christian life 
is realizing that our true self is not out in the future. Our true self is not at the, at the end of our productivity, at the end of our effort. It, it's back at the cross. Our, our true center and our identity is found at the cross of Jesus Christ. What he put to death there and what he brought to life three days later. So if we, sort of along with the collective um, community and cultural uh, moment that we're a part of are simply asking questions of identity, not just individually, but also communally. We don't look forward to the future to figure ourselves out. We, we look backwards to the cross to understand who we are. And the same is true then when it comes for this idea of unity. The, the, this kind of unity, kingdom unity, then when we begin to explore it through the lens of the cross, actually takes us to a very unexpected place. When we get our definition from the cross, we get to a very unexpected place. Let's remember who Paul is writing to. He's writing to new Christians. Something I think that we commonly overlook, that Paul offered Romans only a couple of decades removed from the crucifixion. Everyone is learning to be a Christian from the ground up, so to speak. So then Paul, in his readership, uh, are in his readership are those coming from a Jewish background and worldview, many of them who grew up with a love for the Hebrew Bible, the law, the stories, the matriarchs, the patriarchs of Israel. They were Jewish monotheists. But in order to follow Jesus, they had to assent or believe in or concede to a kind of monotheism which embraced this idea of the Trinity. One God, yet three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And not only that, but the Incarnation that Jesus Christ was truly God in the flesh. Not to mention what Paul is painstakingly trying to make plain here in Romans is that they had to embrace a complete reorientation toward the law through this idea of grace. That all means that for the Jew to follow Jesus was to leave behind a way of being and a way of thinking and a way of worshiping even. To follow Jesus, hear this, was to no longer be unified to Judaism, certainly not in the way that they had been. Conversely, there were others in Paul's uh, readership who grew up in Rome and throughout the Roman Empire. They were Gentiles. This was, this, Rome was the epicenter of modern culture, which included a robust sort of polytheistic structure and lifestyle. As one commentator put it, he called it a world full of gods. See, spirituality was very much part of public life. God and goddesses, gods and goddesses and rituals and sacrifices were not just evidenced in worshiped gatherings. In, in other words, in these sort of sterilized environments of worship and spirituality, they were everywhere. Historian Larry Hurtado explains that even in ordinary activities, such as giving birth or eating or traveling, in the meeting of guilds and other social groups or in formal meetings of a city council, people typically offered appropriate expressions of reverence to the relevant divinities. And a person then who uh, would not refuse these expressions as sort of against my religion, as we would maybe find normative today, people didn't push against this. See, everyone in ancient Rome respected and even accepted the gods of different seasons, regions, peoples, rituals, and they did so without hesitation. That was normal. So Jews were the one exception to this sort of like polytheistic uh, melting pot of all different kinds of ideas where everybody is adopting and adapting to everyone's different kind of deity and gods that they worship and rituals that they take on. Jews were the exceptions to this. In, in fact, the Jews, and subsequently 
Christian monotheistic view was so foreign to the Roman world that when second century church leader Polycarp was martyred, the hostile crowd was yelling, chanting away with the atheists. The atheists, they were equating that to believe in in one God, the, the God of the Bible, was equivalent to being atheist. To believe that God was one was tantamount to not believing in gods or spirituality or religion at all. And so Gentiles then, who grew up in that context, but then believed in the gospel of Jesus, would have to deny every other God. And this unity with Christ would be evidenced in every single gathering, every party, every workplace that they attended. Think about that. That for the Jew to come to Christ was to deny, in many respects, their their heritage and to be a part of their people through this law. At least so many were framing it, thinking about it this particular way. And for the Gentile, then, to come to Christ and and to follow the God of the Bible was to deny every other God. And therefore, in all of these different places in their life, in every different slice of life, they were denying and disunifying, if you will, from every other deity, every other view. So here's the unexpected place that unity takes us. First, we should know that the modern day sort of privatization of faith is a purely modern idea. Jews nor Gentiles in the first century could have comprehended this idea of my faith being mine and being private. Faith was unmistakably public and communal. Secondly, because faith is such a public and communal idea, unity in Christ leads to a ton of division. Unity in Christ leads to a lot of division. So unity is not about us, it's about God, and true unity leads to division. See, to be unified in Christ, we are necessarily disunited from the world, either from the moralistic affiliation of our childhood or the polytheistic or modern world of our pre-conversion. This is what the uh, Apostle James uh, wrote to the scattered church and made, made clear for them in James chapter 4, verse 4. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Logically, the opposite is also true. Friendship with God is enmity with the world. Here's the rub. Loyalty to the world is disloyalty to Jesus. Loyalty to the kingdom of Jesus is disloyalty to the kingdom of this world. To love Jesus, you cannot love the world. We are either united with Christ and his people, or we are united with the world of gods. There is no in-between. Do you see? See, unity is achieved by Christ on the cross, and we are called daily to maintain this unity by rejecting the gods of this world. And in Ephesians, we learn a number of different ways that we maintain this unity through humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another in love. This is how we maintain unity. But we'll need to expand on that a bit. And I think Paul's words in Romans chapter 3 reveal a pathway of richer understanding. So let's look again at this particular passage and then talk about where we're headed today. Romans 3 verse 29 and 30. Or is God the God of Jews only? 
Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, Gentile, of Gentiles also, since God is one. Who will justify the uh, circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through, through faith? So here's, here's where we're headed for the rest of our time. In order to understand more fully what's happening here in the first century, what it was for the Jews to come underneath the, the banner of grace and the gospel of Jesus, what it was for Gentiles to come underneath the lordship of Jesus, this one God, we need to look at the foundation of unity, the objection of unity, uh, the or rather to unity, the objection to unity, and the achievement of unity, and then we'll look at the life of unity. So the foundation, the objection, the achievement, and the life. First, let's consider the foundation of unity. Paul transitions into his next thought here in verse 29 with two questions. But these two questions are directly connected to the thought and grammatical structure to the previous thought. Notice the first word in verse 29. You see it. It's the word or. The word or. So he's juxtaposing his questions with the previous statement through that connecting word. And what did he just say? Well, let's look at verse 27 and 28. Then what becomes of boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So Paul is excluding boasting because everyone is in the same boat. We all sin. We are all falling short of the glory of God. And therefore, justification or salvation is only possible, he says, by faith apart from the law, from works of the law. But then do you see in verse 28, look at, look at it. Paul said that one, or maybe your translation says that man, a person, is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Why is that important? Well, Paul uses a general term there. He's not speaking about a Jew. He's not speaking about a Gentile. He's not speaking about a religious person. He's not speaking about a modern person. He's talking about a person, any person. So connecting directly with that idea, that a person, Paul anticipates an objection coming from his audience. He's just saying generally, a person, any person, is justified by faith apart from works of the law. He is opening up justification. He's opening up salvation through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross as one God over uh, heaven and earth. He's opening it up to all people. And so he's anticipating an objection coming from that, which we'll consider more in a minute. And so he reiterates his teaching by asking two questions. Is God only for Jews or is God also for Gentiles? Yep, he's for Jews and Gentiles. And then he gives the foundation of unity. Look, look what he says there. It's God himself. He simply says, God is one. This, of course, is a deeply Jewish and ancient teaching. The Shema was memorized and recited daily by God's people, taken from Deuteronomy chapter 6. It begins, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Unity is not about us. It's about God. So along with all of history and all of creation, Paul proclaims God is one. That means God's nature and character is the foundation of unity. God's nature and character is the foundation of unity. This is true of all virtue and morality. God is the founder and perfecter of all things bright and beautiful and true and good and faithful. Theologian Michael Reeves 
Indeed, in the triune God is the love behind all love, the life behind all life, the music behind all music, the beauty behind all beauty, and the joy behind all joy. And church, my brothers and sisters, the same is true of unity. The unity of God is behind all true oneness. See, when we say that God is one, that that God is the foundation of unity, we're saying a few things. First, we're saying that God is united within himself. Perhaps the clearest sense of this aspect of God's nature is found when Jesus prays to his heavenly father in John chapter 17. I do not ask for these only, he says in verses 20 and 21, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. See, what this passage and many others allude, uh, alludes to is that the unity of God is within himself, within the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit were and are one. And notice, Jesus' prayer is even that this kind of oneness would also characterize God's people. He wants us to be one. He wants us to have the same kind of union within our community that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit share within the Godhead. It's beautiful. The second thing that we mean when we're saying that God is one is we're saying that he is full of integrity. He is not only one in nature, but he's also one in purpose and righteousness with his character. See, God didn't tell the Gentiles one thing when they were alone in the room with him, right? And then Jews another thing when no Gentiles were around. God's word and gospel and character are consistent. Thank you, God. Jesus himself understood himself not to be a free agent within the incarnation, right? He is always doing his Father's will. He's always about his Father's will. He's always obedient to his Father's word. That's John 5, 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. The Son and the Father are not merely bound in nature, but they are bound in character, in integrity. Thirdly, when when we say that God is one, we're saying there is only one God. There is only one one God. God is not simply one within himself. God is one and there is no other. Can I get an amen? So what Paul writes, when Paul writes God is one, he's not simply saying that God is united in nature and character, but that all unity goes through the God of the Bible because there is no other God. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus was united with the Father, and Jesus knew that as a person of the Godhead, he alone was the way, the truth, and the life, the only mediator between God the Father and humanity. That's how Paul puts it to young Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Unity, church in the square, is not about us. It is about God. And I think it's that third aspect about God's oneness, that there is only one which reveals our primary objection to unity. See, isn't it true? Most of, and perhaps most of us, and perhaps most of our friends and neighbors are comfortable with the idea that the God of the Bible 
has revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ is unified in nature and character. We're good with that. That that sounds like that's a story that you could read about in the scriptures. Cool. He's consistent in his character and his nature. But to suggest that he alone is God over all times, over all places, over all powers, and over all peoples, well, that immediately gets dubbed and it feels intolerant and even mean-spirited. You see, we want to be unified as long as we don't have to sacrifice our freedom, as long as we don't have to lay down our rights. Therefore, any monotheism, particularly the God of the Old and the New Testament is revealed through the cross and through Jesus Christ himself, seem personally and collectively constricting to what we all value way more than unity, which is personal freedom. See, do you see, are you with me in this, that unity is not about us. It's about God and his character, his power, his worth, his beauty. And true unity leads to division, even within our own beings. So the foundation of unity is God himself, which gives birth to our objection to it. And what specifically is our objection to unity? Well, let's go back and consider Paul's audience a little bit more and the hesitations that likely would have been there and that Paul anticipates even as he writes these particular sentences in verses 29 and 30 in Romans chapter 3. Remember, they are in Rome and it's the first century. And Paul teases out their conflicting spirits with two questions. Or is God the God of Jews only? Or is, is, is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, he says, of Gentiles also, since God is one. See, now Paul's original Jewish readers specifically, and Gentiles as well, would not have just received this teaching blindly. They struggled with it. And Paul knew they would struggle with this idea of unity. You see, Jew, Jewish specialness, as, as God's chosen people, would have to be sacrificed on the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus does on the cross. That's what the cross does. It puts to death the idea that anyone or anything else could possibly be God or more important or more powerful or more good or more righteous or more loving than him. See, in the ancient Roman world, as we've already discussed, countless gods colored the public life. It was a world full of gods. But even though there were many gods, and each of those gods hailed from a particular culture and part of the world, as in a cafeteria, you'd, uh, you did not have to restrict yourself to any one of those number of gods. Indeed, any such exclusivity was deemed as utterly bizarre, Hurtado writes about, as we referenced him earlier. So there were many gods, but it was common practice to acknowledge and receive these various deities as gods and to even worship and honor them in the appropriate times and places and in the right setting, with the right, right company. So the general posture of the world in which Paul is writing was one of tolerance toward the rich diversity of gods in heaven as on earth. So all over the panoply of gods and places that people could go. So in short, first century Roman life, this, this sort of consciousness that we have to understand that Paul is writing into is that every God was treated as God. Every God was treated as God. And this Roman way of life of spiritual tolerance was believed to lead to peace and unity because, hear this, if everyone's God is treated as God, then everyone, so they, so they were led to believe, would be happy and get along and there would be no divisions. So, so do you see, the way in which the ancient world was working out, how do we achieve unity? Well, let's just 
treat everyone's God as God. Everyone will be happy. All the gods will be pleased. Everyone will get along. Let's treat all the gods as gods. And then we'll have unity and there'll be no division, right? We might think that we are so much different today. But today, we still live in a world full of gods. Let's not be foolish and think otherwise. However, our approach to produce peace and unity is, is almost the exact opposite as what we have learned about here from the first century. See, in our, in our world today, our approach to, to achieve peace is ultimately about doing something uh, within ourselves, not just around us. See, while in the Roman world, piety meant a readiness to show appropriate reverence for the gods, any and all gods, in our current cultural moment, progress means conceding that reverence toward the divine is always and merely sentimental. In, in other words, that the spiritual realm is not really a thing. Every god is in, in Rome was equally true, and every god in our day is treated as equally false. What this really means, then, is that instead of treating every god as god, what we do is treat every person as if they are god, as if they are their own god and can do what they desire in their own world, in their own universe. See, while in Rome, there was a number of gods and deities and regions and expressed, this all got expressed in public life. In our day, in our context, we're seeing more and more religious ideas and, and expressions expunged from public life. Perhaps the most uh, ardent expression of the different difference between Roman life and secularism in the West is in France. They have a concept called uh, laetitia, which espouses a uh, a strict separation of public life, including religion, and public life with no need or expression of religion. See, in the States, we might think we have something similar, but it's very, very different to say that we have freedom of religion, while in France, they press towards this idea of freedom from religion. See, this is a kind of spiritual tolerance which makes the self supreme, and it's believed to achieve unity. Freedom from division. If everyone just gets to be their own God, then everyone will do as they please and everyone will get what they want. But is this really true? So we can't just say, well, that's what it was then. This is what it is now. Whatever. Not really a big problem. We have to get underneath that because we are tempted by that. We're drawn by that. We are informed of this. We are shaped by this every day. Can unity be achieved by treating all gods as gods? Can divisions be eradicated by treating every person as supreme and sovereign of their own? No, because true unity leads to division. We cannot, this is just killing the people pleaser in me. I don't know about you. See, I want to believe in a world. Everybody can hold hands, sing kumbaya, everybody gets along. But that's not true. That's not the reality. That, that's not even the reality in fantasy. That's not a fantasy that Jesus believed in and had in his consciousness. You see, for the Jews and the Gentiles, in Paul's original audience, God is one meant the refusal to worship all other gods. They had to reject uh, the God of the Bible, or rather, uh, in, in order to do, to do that, if they did not do that, they would be rejecting the God of the Bible. Yahweh. That was the only one. Yahweh was the one and the only. And so they couldn't do that. 
They had to refuse in every setting, no matter what dinner they sat down at, no matter whose friend's house they visited, no matter what sporting event that they went to, no matter who was getting married or who was having a baby, they had an opportunity in the public life of the first century to deny the gods of the world and to claim the name of Christ. For you and I, God is one means the refusal to worship ourselves. See, we reject that the God of the Bible is simply a sentimental, personal crutch to fulfill our personal longings and aspirations, that he rather is Lord. He is God over all things living and dead yesterday, today, and forever. See, there's a tension in this. To follow the God of the Bible means that I deny myself and pick up my cross every day. Do you see what's fascinating? is that polytheism in the first century and secularism today are actually way more similar than we might think at first blush. See, in the ancient polytheistic sense, people tried to achieve unity by treating every god as God, thinking that that would keep the peace and eradicate division. And today, in our secular world, we try to achieve unity by treating every person like a god or savior or agent unto themselves, thinking this will keep the peace and eradicate division. And in either case, we believe in a fantasy. We think we can avoid division. We think we can avoid conflict. We, can think, we think we can avoid disappointing people. We think we can follow Jesus and not die daily. We think we can follow Jesus and not suffer. We think we can follow Jesus and not disappoint our parents. We think we can follow Jesus and still make our kids our best friends and they think that we do no wrong. See, we think if we have faith, or rather if we make faith private and invisible, we'll avoid division. But division is necessary. Hear this, division is necessary in the achievement of unity. And actually, in trying to achieve unity without God, we've only revealed how divided we actually are from him. To unity is not about us. It's about God. And true unity always leads to division, even division within our own hearts. This is why it's such good news that unity is not a project we're working on, that Jesus has already achieved unity on the cross, and that cross has brought division. The cross divides. See, God is the foundation of our unity. Believing that division is avoidable is our objection to unity, and unity has been achieved through the cross of Jesus Christ. How? How does Jesus achieve unity on the cross? Well, Jesus endures disunity from the Father. That means that Jesus takes on the cost and consequence of our sin, which separates us from our Heavenly Father. That's the reality Matthew records in Matthew chapter 27, verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemak sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, in that moment on the cross, what Jesus experienced is something that the Son had not experienced for eternity past. He had experienced since then a complete unity with his Father on the cross. He felt separation. He felt distance. He, he felt disunity from the Father. The God who is one endured the suffering of separation for his glory then and our good. Unity is not about us. It's about God. Jesus also achieves this unity on the cross by tearing down what divides. So not only by being 
enduring disunity from the Father, but by tearing down what divides. Paul tells the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 2, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So on the cross, the God who is one does a work to bring us near. We could not draw near and and cause oneness with him and, and each other on our own. He does the work by tearing down what divides, namely Satan, sin, and death. He crushes what has been crushed and what has crushed us. He kills what has been destroying us. Unity, then, is still not about us. It's about God. It's about what he's done. So Jesus secures unity on the cross by enduring disunity from the Father, by tearing down what divides us from God, and also Jesus unites his people by dividing the world. He actually promised that he would do this. In Luke's gospel, he explains the costliness of his lordship and of finding unity in him. He says, do you think that I have come to bring peace or give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. See, Jesus doesn't entertain the fantasy of a unity without division. True unity leads to division because Jesus' lordship is all-encompassing. To follow him is to disavow yourself from every false god and idol. To follow him is, is to pursue him and to run away from every other false pursuit to run away from every other love, to to run away even from yourself and, and centering yourself in your own life. Whatever could possibly divide your allegiance to him, we must flee from immediately and completely because Jesus divides. Jesus endures disunity from the Father. Jesus tears down what divides and Jesus unites through division. That's how our unity has been achieved. He has achieved it on the cross, by enduring our consequence, by tearing down what separates us, and by causing division from this world and with him. I want to press in just a little bit more. See, I think this kind of life seems really uncomfortable, doesn't it? See, in a world hopped up on artificial unity, something you can Instagram but doesn't really last, we've become deceived, thinking we can achieve unity by ourselves, and without division. We think that no one has to shed blood for us to fix the world. If we believe in that, we don't know how serious our predicament really was in sin and death and because of Satan. The Bible teaches us that to be united with Christ and his people means we must expect division. That's really uncomfortable because if we're honest, many of us are much more concerned about not offending our friends and family than we are concerned about not offending God. In our sin, we are much more likely to be passive in the face of polytheism and secularism and people's tendency to glory in themselves and to do as they please, treating every other God or every other person like gods. 
We're more likely to do that than to be faithful to Christ. I know that's true of me. I'm more concerned about not offending my friends than not offending God. And so I can be passive in the face of what is broken. I can turn a blind eye to something that needs correction, that needs unity, that needs transformation, that needs healing, that needs correction. So that's the point of vision. That's the connection and power of our unity in Christ and unity as God's people. And it's being conscious of this division, that we have been separated from the world. We've been separated from the gods of this world and a world filled with gods, which Christ enables us then to maintain this kind of unity and to live in unity. Let's keep in mind Paul's original readers and how costly it was for them to come to Christ. Paul said, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. God is one. Therefore, leave behind your Jewish allegiances. God is one. Therefore, leave behind your self-made morality. God is one. Therefore, leave behind eating meat sacrificed to idols. God is one. Therefore, stop honoring false gods when you go to sporting events and visit your in-laws. God is one, so stop worshiping money. God is one, so stop acting like you can have sex with whomever you want without any consequence. God is one, so leave behind your people-pleasing tendencies. God is one, therefore honor, worship, trust, follow, and love him alone. God is one, therefore be united in him and separate yourself from the world in holiness. God is one, so maintain the unity Jesus has achieved on the cross by living in unity with him and his people, even if it means being divided from and within the world. See, unity is not about us. It's about God. So whatever those feelings are that are going on inside of us when we get so uncomfortable by even using the language of division in such a time as this, we need to remember that true unity leads to division. And church, that's great news. It's great news. It's the best news ever that in Christ, you not only are unified with him and unified with his people, but you can be divided from Satan, sin, and death forever. That's true unity. True unity is something that is birthed out of the character of God and is maintained by the people of God, and it brings division here and now and forever, but a kind of division that reveals truth, a kind of division that reveals God's great honor and God's glory. And so God, help us. Help us in this, to trust you. Help us to maintain this unity that glorifies you, that honors you, that is founded in your character and in your nature so that we too, like the Jews and the Gentiles of Paul's original readers, his original audience, that because God is one, we can be one. And we pray this in Jesus' name.